people will, will be told, well, you need to save 10% of your, of your salary, right? Pay yourself first, which don't get me wrong. That's good advice, but pay yourself first and it needs to be this amount. Well, if that amount is preventing you from doing some things that you want, you have to think about whether you are balancing your future needs and your current, right? There are some things you can only do when you're young. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Dr. Michael Kothakoda, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. I'm looking forward to our conversation. I um, found out you were from Raleigh or near Raleigh. And before we recorded, I started offloading my sorrows of my Edmonton Oilers who lost to your Carolina Hurricanes in 2006. And we haven't recovered since, but maybe this year. I think this podcast is going to be the jumping off point. That's that they're yeah. going to start recovering after this, this podcast. Yeah, I'm going to send it to the team as a bit of motivation. There you, there you go. You know, outside of hockey, I think as is preparing for today, I felt like your background blending research and practical experience with your firm and so forth is going to be a very fascinating area to, to stick with. But before we get into the research meets practical experience, I thought we would take a little peek into your story. When I was poking around online, I found out in your journey, you had a major transition and it got me thinking of the power of transitions or changes as they sometimes serve as fresh starts or opportunities to do something new. And sometimes those changes are forced upon us, sometimes they're not. Often though, and I speak from experience, we might seek to have some sort of change, but this idea of money and the financial constraints or the worries that we have associated with changes in money often prevent us from making these changes. So I want to go back in your story. When you were called in on your National Guard unit as it was activated, I believe I heard this correctly, to go to Iraq, what significance, if anything at all, did this change, this event have in your life? And how has it shifted, if anything, the way you see money and transitions in your own life. Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. A deployment like that is a very life-changing experience and you can't overstate that. You know, I went into the deployment and I had a great, you know, job beforehand. I was, you know, getting promoted fast and, you know, I was on a, on a fast track there. And I wanted to actually try out financial planning and financial advising, but I kept getting, kept getting promoted. And one of the things that a deployment will do for you is you have, a lot of downtime, and then that's punctuated by short periods of extreme activity. And it puts a lot of things into perspective for you, puts life into perspective for you, but also like your goals. And so, you know, what do you want to do with your life? What do you value? And I think, you know, when I returned, it made the decision a lot easier to, to leave my company and then move into financial planning. You know, that was a huge part of the deployment, right? created this space for me to make the decision that I'd been trying to make for years. And that's the the personal side of how it affected me and where I wanted to go. But then one of the things that you got to see a lot of was a deployment, especially for young single people and, and even married people, it creates these strange financial changes. So for example, somebody who had a job before, they might be making more or less when they get deployed. And so there's a, there's a sudden shift in financial circumstances. Watching how people handle that is both terrifying and fascinating because some people will, they've never seen, you know, they've never had $40,000 in their bank account. Most of us, when we're young, don't have $40,000 in our bank account. And, you know, to see what, what some people automatically do with that money, it's very fascinating, but also you know, it tells us that we're, we're not doing a really good job of educating people. 
And so you create these natural, what we call in, in science, like the natural experiments where you can see how somebody behaved before they went on deployment and how they behave after. They go from, you know, one extreme to another and then back again. And you get to see kind of how, how that changes. And so that, that created even more fascination with the story. And you start to see these people, you know, some people who are, who excelled in the military, but then maybe not so much in civilian life versus other people who don't excel in the military and do really well in civilian life. And so there's just this really interesting juxtaposition that you get to witness. I think it's just interesting the three words I wrote down, downtime, space, and perspective, where in this case, a deployment provided you with that opportunity to kind of look from the top view on your life to make these decisions. How have you noticed money and the busyness of life when we try to keep acquiring more and more money? I know you talk about money stories and have you noticed that we tend not to give ourselves this opportunity to do those three words you said for some downtime space and perspective to really understand like what are our true desires or values when it comes to our lives integrated with money? Well, I think that in the U.S., I mean, in almost worldwide, the culture is very much, it's consume, it's get ahead, it's money is how we keep score, right? So in the competition, when you're talking about the your hockey team. Don't bring you know, it up, they it keep, hurts. We <laughs> <laughs> keep in score with goals. You know, in, in modern society, we keep score with money. And a lot of times that's tied up with ego and how successful we are and how, you know, how we're able to take care of our uh, loved ones. It's a very powerful motivator and a very powerful thing where you start to see the money as something other than a tool to, you know, meet your goals and to, you know, live your values. And we all get caught up in it. Everybody gets caught up in, in chasing that, that money is what the next dollar is it incrementally better than the last dollar. You know, I need more in order to, to do this other thing. And you start to get to a point where, you know, it's never enough. And so you don't want to get in that trap. And I think a lot of people will fall into that trap and start to do things that are not necessarily what they really want to be doing. There's a movie, I think it's called Up in the Air. It's George Clooney. He's going around firing people. I'm bad with movies. Well, I figured it's George Clooney. Everybody knows. So he, he's firing this, this man at the end of the movie. And the guy is, you know, he's telling them, hey, you know, you can, you can go do whatever you want now. It's a little bit more complex and it's a little bit more heart-tugging than, than I'm describing it. But what's interesting about that conversation is, you know, this guy, he always wanted to be a chef, but, you know, he worked in an office his whole life and then he kept taking the next promotion because, it, you know, provided more money and there was less perceived risk associated with that. And because there was less perceived risk, he stayed in it and he got fired. And now he's going to be able to pursue what he wants to do. And he, he was forced to have some space and perspective. But, you know, if that doesn't happen to you, a lot of times people will go through their whole lives and never have that, that moment. And then you're 65, 70, and there are a hundred things that you regret. Yeah. And those regrets are the ones that we often look back on and really ruminate over. I think this idea back to these transitions of downtime, space and perspective in your story, I know that there are many times where people are let go from a job or forced to quit or packaged out and they're not good. The following is not good because people might not be in a financial place to pick themselves up and et cetera. But I think many of us have heard of people from people, relatives who've been in this same situation. You explained with the movie with George Clooney that they're actually relieved. They're like, this was the best thing that happened to me. It gave, I wouldn't have quit, but I wanted to. And I think it just goes back to this idea of trying to get that time and space to really, I guess, acknowledge and listen to ourselves to see that we, what we really want. Often on this podcast, we talk about these money statements when we were growing up, how much they influence the way we perceive and feel and experience money. You mentioned something there is money is a tool. So that's a statement that we've heard many times. Money is a tool. See, money is only a tool. It might just be me, but implementing that can be challenging. I didn't say it was easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I understand you, I guess, embrace this, this statement that money is a tool. How have you managed to maybe it's not easy to point, but manage to 
embrace this mentality and put it into the research and your professional work and your personal life. That's a good kind of point. I mean, one of the points of research is that it's supposed to be objective and we're supposed to be looking at things objectively. And that's where you get the, it's much easier to see money as a tool if you're approaching it from that perspective, if you're approaching it from this objective perspective. But we really do get tied up in in the emotions around it. And I think, you know, that's what's so fascinating is a lot of, a lot of the research that came before we started having financial planning research and borrowing from psychology was economic research, which is, you know, assumes we're all perfectly rational and we're all going to treat that money like it is a tool. And it turns out that, you know, what we've noticed is that's not how people behave. People behave very, very differently than what we quote unquote should be behaving. And so you get into these things of, you know, what's optimal, you know, what is the optimal way to do, you know, put the plan your finances and the optimal way to budget, the optimal way to save for retirement. And those things are, you know, people are messy. Life is messy and that's not how life is going to go. And so, you know, I think when you're looking at something like a money story and something that's something so small that can affect your life, you know, you know, and how you spend money, you know, an example from my own life would be, you know, we didn't go out to dinner as a kid and it was this, it was seen as like this big deal. And I thought, well, when I grow up, I don't, I don't have to worry about going out to dinner. I would just be able to do it. And then other people are like, that's how I grew up. So that's how I'm going to operate as an adult. So it's really fascinating to see those changes in people. On that, I heard you had a, um, a belief on popcorn at the movie theaters as well from your past. Can you share that? Because I felt like it was story. such a relevant one when I heard that. Yeah. So the popcorn story is so growing up, you know, popcorn is expensive at the theaters. It's, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, weren't, you weren't aware of that. But, you know, we ate a lot of microwave popcorn at home, but my mom would, you know, she'd bring it to the movie theater, but I would get, would get anxiety around when we would go into the movie theater because it said, don't bring any outside food or drink. And it's not like there's like the the popcorn police are going to come arrest you. But I, you know, I didn't know. I was six, seven years old. And when my wife and I would go to movies, I'd want to get the popcorn. And she's like, well, I get it. It's not even good. It's not, the popcorn doesn't even taste good. And I couldn't explain it for the longest. But, you know, now I can go to the movie theater and I don't need popcorn. But there was a time where I absolutely, you know, had to get the popcorn at the movie theater no matter if it was bark, no matter if it had, you know, any sort of bird butter or it was just old, I still had to get it. But, you know, now I don't have to do that anymore. So some of this is like recognizing where these things come from. And it's really difficult. That's why financial therapy is so important. Or even, you know, if you're a practitioner or just in financial planning, engaging with your client and, and understanding where some of those things are, we tend to make recommendations without all the available information as financial planners. So we have a lot of work to do. Mm. Your story illustrates such a, uh, I mean, simple story, but yet very, like a lot of depth and layers to it. I recall going to this, we had a water park in Edmonton. We still do. It's like the biggest indoor wave pool water park with all these slides, but we would bring in all dressed chips and salmon sandwiches, canned salmon. And uh, I went back to the water park with my kids and I was a kid when my parents were bringing in the the package or brought in food. I remember preparing. I'm like, oh, we got to get the lunches ready. We can't buy the food there because it's so expensive. And uh, so yeah, your popcorn story was very relatable to me. And I still brought food, by the way. Maybe I should lean into that. But I've also, it's too expensive for theirs. But I mean, th- there's a place for frugality. In fact, there's yeah. a, you know, there's a big place for it. So. But there is a place for recognizing how far are you going to ignore the sign that says no inside food? And what lessons does that teach your kids when they're like, don't look at that? Yeah, you're violating a rule. Yeah, Yeah, it would. Yeah. So we've been talking about in and around like with your, your work in research, this objective lens that has helped you embrace this money as a tool. Let's talk about the power of research, especially in the financial planning realm. Earlier, you said, before we had financial planning research, uh, that was your quote from this. It it just strikes me as interesting that that is a statement. Before we had research, what were we doing? And then at that end is, what are we still doing? So could you just elaborate on how you've been able to integrate 
research in your practical work and why, what I see online, why do you feel like it's so important that we do so? Well, I think if you don't mind, let's t- take a step back. The financial yeah. planning field is only a, you know, 50, a little over 50 years old. They had their first, their 50th anniversary in 2019, I believe. So the field itself is not that old. And then when you think about the research component of the field, a lot of professions are built on research. Ours is not. Ours is built on, you know, hit or miss kind of giving advice. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. We borrowed a lot from economics. We've been borrowing from psychology, but we didn't have any, we haven't tested any of these things in our, in our own field. The first PhD, I think was granted in 2007. So not a ton of research in financial planning. And what we found is some of the things that work in other areas don't work in financial planning. Some of that is because, you know, we, we should have been borrowing from behavioral science for, for quite some time. But one of the things that, that fascinates me and got me, you know, into research and pursuing a PhD was as a practitioner, you know, you go through, you know, talking with clients, developing a plan, convincing them to implement the plan. Sometimes you see them implement it. Sometimes you see them not implement it. Sometimes they take your advice and sometimes they don't. And you know that the, the advice is sound, or at least you think the advice is sound. And then they don't take it, which doesn't make any sense. So then you start to wonder, well, could I have done something differently? Is there a different way to present the information? Let's test it. This way of presenting information, more people are likely to implement it. Is it just the client's fault if they don't do it? No, I don't think it is. I think it is a lack of understanding the client, a lack of connection with the client. I really liked your answer (laughs) that you just flat out said no. Yeah, no, it is incumbent upon the financial planner First of all, it's a, in the U.S. at least, it's a legal requirement to know your customer. But the legal requirement is a little thin. The legal requirement is, you know, you need to know their assets, you need to know their age, their ages of their children. You have to know this, you know, their salary. But that is, that is so one-dimensional that you can't possibly give competent advice. And you really need to be curious about this person or people and their families because that's how you're going to be able to provide the best advice because you can have a model that says, okay, well, clients that fit in your financial profile should do this and, and risk profile should do this. But you don't know all of the other underlying pieces. You don't know their hopes and dreams. You don't know their anxieties. You don't know, you know, what they're looking to do. And then if you present yourself as a one-dimensional financial planner, i.e. I only do investments, I only do tax, I only do insurance. And that's all they're going to want. That's all they're going to expect from you. And so you have to be able to present yourself in a way that is more of a partner in the process of, you know, helping them with their financial lives. A true advisor, somebody who advises and provides holistic information, who sees the whole picture and can, you know, help them implement it. Yeah, this is super interesting. And I, I really drawn to that, like, holistic view of a person when it comes to our financial lives. How have you been able to balance the optimal calculations that are outputted from our financial planning softwares with the, to use the word you said earlier, the messiness of life? And let me just frame, like, you know, at times we might need a direction to go and that could be a financial calculation. And then there's other times where you've got to be like, well, we're going to slow down because this happened, this life event happened, and you know we're not going to get there yet. How have you been able to help clients like embrace both of these two ends? Well, the first thing I would say is my philosophy in planning is that optimal is not always best, right? So just because it's the optimal solution doesn't mean it's the best solution. I communicate that to clients. Like, listen, we can optimize your financial life that's not something that is incredibly difficult. Getting you to do it and getting you to follow through and, and it not causing you anxiety and, you know, messing up other areas of your life, that is, you know, incredibly difficult. So what we want is what's best for you. And that may not be the optimal solution in every circumstance. Well, I mentioned the messiness of life and I think there are random events that happen that affect your financial plan. It's one of the reasons you don't, that financial plans aren't static. 
and that we call it financial planning. We don't call it people who create financial plans. It's financial planning because it requires adapting to situations. So there are some things that you can choose to do within financial planning, like you can choose to buy this insurance policy, you can choose to invest in these things, but then there are all the other things that happen to you, job loss, market event, death in the family, and all of those things affect your, your financial plan or your financial, and, and so you, or your financial planning process. And so you have to be able to adapt to those, to those changes. And, you know, I think that my approach has, of course, evolved over the years. I was trained at a brokerage firm. You know, I've learned over the years different ways to do things. I, I built my practice working with divorce. And that's a situation where optimal is almost never going to be a solution. Sorry, what did you say you built your... with? Oh, oh sorry. Yeah, it was clients who were going through divorce. So oh, divorce. My, okay, sorry. Yeah, people divorce. divorce. Yeah. So and you talk about emotions, you talk about... Mm you know, a lot of, you know, you talk about an event that is going to affect their financial lives and their, or their emotional lives for the foreseeable future. It requires a lot of of maneuvering. And so, you know, I think that making sure that you can adapt to that messiness and adapt to people, because you're, you're not getting these people as infants and you're not shaping them as they grow. You're getting them warts and all. And you have to be able to, you know, understand where they're coming from. And I think that's where, you know, being able to ask genuinely curious questions. So not just what's in the fact finder, being able to take the conversation in a direction that doesn't readily pay you, right? You may have four or five meetings, you know, it might be you need to, you need to have four or five meetings before you can have a financial conversation. And that's challenging for a business person, somebody who's tried to earn a living doing this and people who have processes and they've got to follow this process. And this is where when people start talking about artificial intelligence, I mean, artificial intelligence is not going to have the ability to take the conversation in the direction that it needs to go. It's not going to be able to pick up on, at least in its current state, not going to be able to pick up on body cues. It's not going to be able to pick up on nuances and it's not going to be able to be thoughtful about which direction the conversation needs to go. A lot of times what I've seen is, well, when you're trying to, especially because it's a, it's a sales-oriented business, so when you're trying to get people to you know, buy your service, you, you can go down those tangents, but then you also have all of these little tools that you're taught to bring it back to financial planning. And I think that's the wrong approach. I think the right approach is to say, okay, we're going down this rabbit hole. Well, let's keep going. Let's see where it takes us. And then, well, you also told me this other thing. Let's go down that rabbit hole. And that might take several meetings. And then when you get to know them and you've built that, you've built that trust, you now have the ability to offer advice in a way that is best for them and that they'll take. Which, is that not the point, hey? Advice that they'll take. It is the point. And yeah, absolutely. And now I'll I'll take it back to research. So that's my opinion. That's what I think you're supposed to do. But I don't know if that's correct. And I don't know if it's correct for everybody. We have several problems in research. One, we don't have enough researchers. We don't have enough replicated research. Uh, that's, that's actually in, in the scientific community writ large. But we need to be able to make sure that if we do a study, we discover a phenomenon, we can confirm that phenomenon. And then we can say, okay, yeah, this is how you need to do things going forward. So my opinion of these things, these are, these worked for me, but they may not work for everybody. And so how can we, from a research perspective, you know, help all financial planners discover the way that they can connect their clients the best? What are some of the things that we can, what are some of the paths we can take them down? It's very, very interesting when you talk about replicable, like making sure that we can replicate research to identify, and these are your words, this worked for me, but can it work for other people? And we've all seen financial gurus, so to speak, and media specialty individuals who have found something that may or may not have worked for themselves. They claim it works for themselves. And then they just offload it to that this one size is going to fit everyone. But what I experience is when it doesn't, we then in turn have this internal conversation as the client says, what's wrong with me? It didn't work for me, then the problem is me is it can't be the guru. 
right? The guru is, you know, everybody, they've got, you know, 40 million Instagram followers, 100 million TikTok followers. They make a lot of money off of this advice they give. So clearly, and again, going back to money being this measure. So if somebody makes a lot of money, any, anytime somebody makes a lot of money and you're taking their advice, the question should be, does the fact that they make a lot of money mean that their advice is sound? And I think to your point, what you were talking about is this, you know, the things that sell are these, these blanket recommendations. You need six to 12 months of emergency savings. Well, maybe that's not necessary for somebody who's in the military, who has, you know, a career and they don't have to really worry about getting fired. They don't need to worry about, they don't need to worry about that. Or maybe they need enough savings to replace their air conditioner or their heater or whatever it might be. You don't ask enough questions about these rules of thumb that were given. You need seven times the amount of your salary in your retirement account. Well, four. You haven't given me any other information except that. So I think if I could stop all of the gurus, first of all, some of the advice they give, it's not harmful. So I mm-hmm. guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that, it, that it's not harmful from a financial perspective. If we go back to exactly what you said, where people say, well, I can't do that. I can't save six to 12 months. I don't, I don't have, I don't have the free income to do that. I don't have enough. Like, how, how am I going to do that? It's going to take me 50 years to do that. In the meantime, my kids are not, you know, eating what they need to to survive. And so this whole piece about, well, what's wrong with me? That's a huge part of this. That's a huge part of of financial planning and financial planning has been so much focused on the finance and, and the numbers, which by the way, are incredibly important. A lot of times I hear people will shift from, well, we need to be focusing on behavior and we need to be focusing on psychology. And, and absolutely we do, but not at the expense of the tech, of the, of the mathematical skills and the number skills that you need. You need both and you need to, you need to have all of that. It is an incredibly noble and skilled profession. And because it is, and because it's a high, a high paid profession, you need to know your stuff and you need to not harm people because you don't know your stuff. And I think that that where you, you get into the emotional harm with some of these blanket recommendations. Yeah. Thank you for that explanation. And I, I definitely agree is that the numbers are important, but to your point, not at the expense there could be an and. They both can exist. Yeah. And maybe, because we certainly see a, a much larger focus on the emotional side in Canada, FP Canada. So that's like our CFP board. Mm-hmm. They've introduced financial psychology into the CFP curriculum. I know the F, our CFP board has as well. So maybe the pendulum has to overswing a little bit to, to bring some parity in, in conjunction with the numbers. I'm curious though, as we start to like, come back to looking at the numbers, you brought up rules of thumbs. I believe you either have done some research or researching whether these rules of thumbs work. You pointed out the emergency fund and gave a good example of why that blanket statement might not or might be applicable. Are there any other general loop rule of thumbs that we hold to be truce in financial planning that maybe you have a a different perspective on? Well, investment allocation would be one. You know, how much you need to spend in retirement is another, you know, usually say people say 70%. The probability of success when you're talking about Monte Carlo simulations, a Monte Carlo simulation is simply just a way. So we know that, that capital markets, investment markets tend to not be very predictable. If they did, we'd all be rich, but because they're not predictable, but we do have we do have some bounds that we typically operate within. We know that on average, it's going to return X percent. And we know it's going to oscillate between negative something percent and positive something percent. So using those bounds, we simulate returns. So we might simulate a lifetime of returns a thousand or 10,000 times. And then we see how many of those, in how many of those cases are we successful? How many of those cases do we not run out of money? Which is generally the, is generally the rule of thumb, but maybe running out of money is not the right one. You know, maybe adjusting how much the income lab does a lot with probability of adjustment. So you might have a, you know, 80% chance that you have to, you know, take 500 less a month in retirement. 
And maybe that's not a big deal because people see failure and that that can create panic. But in general, there are there are pro- there are problems with using Monte Carlos for a variety of reasons. But people will latch onto them. They'll say, "Okay, well, I've got a ninety percent chance of success, so I should follow their plan." Well, they might be oversaving with that ninety percent probability of success because, for several reasons, you could be forty years old and you have no idea what the next twenty five years are going to hold. You don't know how much are we building in large raises? Are we building in buying a business, selling a business? We have to build. You have to build all of those things in. You don't know where you're going to be in those in those areas. So this, there's a lot of times there's an over reliance on some of these tools, and so something like an eighty percent or a ninety percent doesn't give you a lot of information. So I think that's another one. I think you know you you hear a lot about you know the the seventy percent rule where you should have you should have enough to spend seventy percent of your of your pre retirement expenses in retirement, that depends on a lot of things. What if you got a mortgage five years before you retired? Probably still going to be paying the same sort of thing. You know, what if you, know, you were commuting by plane, you know, just before retirement? Now you're not going to be commuting by plane. I mean, that means you have significantly lower expenses than you did before. So there are a lot of factors that kind of go into that. And a lot of times financial planners will just use those rules of thumb. They'll say, well, you know, rule of thumb is 70%. So that's what we're going to use. Well, that goes back to getting to know your client and making sure you know what they're comfortable with. Most of the advice we give around how you allocate your assets is based on some rule of thumb, right? A hundred minus your age, that should be your stock and bond portfolio. I mean, I, I don't even know where that came from. Like I can't, I have looked to find like, where's, what is the origin of this rule of thumb? Bob and did it at a presentation. It was, it probably was Bob. <laughs> it was probably Bob 53 years ago who came yeah. up with this. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are a number of, of things like that. You should have, make sure you have, you spread your fixed income across duration. Make sure you, you know, invest heavily in large caps. Things have changed. The landscape's changed and we should, you know, we should adapt to that and we should test these things. Does this make sense? And I think what we'll find is a lot of times it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's, you know, it's, it's somebody's rule because it worked for them. An idea I think is very important is it's somebody's rule because it worked for them. But as we've been talking about, it doesn't mean it's going to work for all of us because Boy, do we have vastly different lives, different needs and wants. I've read online or I heard you online talking about this idea of needs and wants and dividing them. And something really spoke to me when I was listening to you talk. And I'm bringing this in because when we look at the computer computations of, say, the Monte Carlo that we need to get to this 80 or more percent. I think to your point, we then start to devalue or deprioritize our wants or spending that extra money on our kids, embracing the unfolding of life as it happens in front of us. So could you just speak to this idea of dividing our wants and needs and what you said, sometimes we deprioritize our wants? If you recall, I'm putting you on the spot here. (laughs) No, well, I do. I actually, I do recall that. I've actually said that a number of times, but I think it's important. I, I think it's important to identify your needs, you know, but needs can, your needs can even, sometimes your needs can include some wants so it can get a little murky, but, but you like your base needs so that you can see, okay, well, how much do I need to, you know, to live on and to live, you know, the way I want to again, conflating or mixing wants and needs, but, but in general, like how, how much to survive essentially and to make sure that my kids have a good education, they're well cared for. All of those things. But I think what, what happens a lot of times is people will, will be told, well, you need to save 10% of your, of your salary, right? Pay yourself first, which don't get me wrong. That's good advice, but pay yourself first and it needs to be this amount. Well, if that amount is preventing you from doing some things that you want, you have to think about whether you are balancing your future needs and your current. Right. There are some things you can only do when you're young. I mean, I, I'm 45 years old and there are certain things I just can't do anymore, which is hard to accept, by the way. 
And so there's just certain things that I can't do anymore that I could do when I'm 20, 25, and then maybe I had the money, but maybe I think it's that. I think that 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 can be a tragedy as well. It's important for people in order to live a fulfilled life to think about both the present and future. We talked a lot about in in academia, we talk a lot about being present-oriented versus future-oriented, and some people are you know, very future-oriented, some people are very present-oriented. And I think you have to recognize where you are on there and you have to attempt to balance that. And this is where I think a financial planner is invaluable in helping you talk through those things. You want to go on a vacation to Tahiti. Okay, well, let's figure out how to make that happen and still do these other things that are not going to give you anxiety, right? Because some guru told you that you needed to save 10% of your cent. <laughs> I, I don't know if there's research around this or maybe your observations that could turn into research, but how does an advisor go? How do they get in the position to be able to have that conversation where they're open enough to listen so that they can hear our clients? I guess I'm rephrasing my question. How I'm a financial planner. How do we financial planners use the research that's out there, use the, the knowledge, whether it's from the social science, so that we can start showing up really to hear the messages below the dollars so that we can help our clients not just focus on the Monte Carlo outcome, but also see what, what, what's happening right now that they can embrace in their life so that they can, at the end of life, saying, I did it, I lived a good one. You know, I'll go back to, we don't have enough research, we don't have enough replicated research. And we also, one of the things that we don't do because we borrowed so heavily from economics, we don't have a lot of what's called single case research or in of one studies. So for example, like you mentioned, everybody's so different. What work may work for one family may not work for another. And so sometimes you have to just look at one group of people and you have to follow them and see and conduct interventions. Like, hey, I'm going to try this and see if it works. I'm going to try this and see if it works. And if you do that, you start to, you start to build up enough knowledge to where you can apply that. There are some good resources that of some recent research. Uh, I'll give you uh, one quick example. Dr. Tim Todd, he's at Liberty. His dissertation research is this fascinating piece of, of work where ta he's talking about framing. So how you frame something, whether you frame it in the positive or negative and whether you apply a story to it, really affects how people will engage or respond to your recommendations. So for example, if you frame somebody needing to get insurance in the negative, like say somebody died, these are all these bad things that happened, then that person may be more likely to purchase the insurance as opposed to if you say, hey, this, you know, this person got insurance and their kids were, were able to go to college, they were able to live this life, people are less likely to buy insurance that way. They're more likely to buy it in the case where it's tragic. Conversely, retirement is, is different. If you start talking about how devastated somebody didn't save enough for retirement and they had this devastating problem, framing it in the negative, well, people are not going to really respond to that. But if you frame it in the positive and you say, listen, Joe and, and, and Jim were going through their lives and, you know, they decided to save for retirement. And then when they retired, they were able to start, you know, Jim was able to start a business. Joe was able to, you know, travel and paint, whatever it might be. And so I think that sort of research is incredibly valuable to financial planners because if you're going to be trying to make recommendations, you need to know if, you, if, you're, if you're framing it correctly. Are you telling the right story? So I think you know, that there are a number of recent works that will allow you to do that. Some, some of it is even around client-planner interaction. So you know, there's Dr. Azebedo in Texas Tech. She's written extensively on client-planner interaction. So I think there's just a number of ways to access this research. For financial planners who in the U.S., they, if, they're, if they have CFP credential, they can access financial planning review. And if you can access you know, financial planning review, a lot of those articles, especially a lot of the recent ones, are, are very applicable to everyday financial planning, being able to implement some of this research into your practice. That said, researchers need to do a better job of making it more accessible to financial planners. And we need to be able to plain language it. When we write uh, academic articles, we write for each other, typically. So a lot of technical language, 
you know, the implications are very, tend to be a very short part of, of the article when it, quite frankly, it should be probably the, the longest part because why else are we doing research if we're not trying to improve the lives of people? So a lot going on there. <laughs> the methods do take up a big part of those papers. They do. We love writing the method. That's for <laughs> sure. And I'm a big part. I love math. I love writing that for sure. But I think it's important to show, hey, this is what we did and this is why we can rely on the results. So I'm going to ask you something about what you just said is that researchers need to do, and these were your words, a better job making it applicable for the everyday individuals. What is some of the yeah. research that you've done recently or, or not recently that you feel is important based on this conversation? And can you tell us in an applicable manner? Yeah, I mean, one of the, the first research papers I, I ever worked on was about visualization and financial information. And I think Michael Thomas, Dr. Thomas at UGA, it does some talk on uh, visualization. He doesn't cite me, but, you know, so Michael, if you're listening next time. He's been uh, a guest, so he, maybe he's listening. <laughs> yeah, he, he might be. He knows I'm joking too. So the, the point of this was, okay, well, let's test different methods of providing financial information to people. So, you know, the, the big five financial literacy questions or financial knowledge questions. And what we found is that if you, you know, if you present the information in a way that is, that is clear, that is visual, then people are more likely to retain it. So they're more likely to keep that information, you know, going forward. And one of the really cool things about it is that it started to level the playing field across demographics. Those particular questions tend to have a, a very large gender disparity where men tend to have higher scores on those questions than women do. Well, if you explain it the correct way, then that difference disappears almost entirely. And so, you know, there is a, you know, that's a case to be made for if you're talking, you know, a lot of times I hear, you know, one of the things I hear about from financial planners when they talk about working with couples is they're like, well, you know, I mainly work with, especially male financial planners, well, I mainly work with, you know, the, the husband or the male or whatever it might be. And the woman really doesn't really pay attention to me. Well, maybe because you're not speaking to her. Maybe you're not speaking to her in a way. And not that you're not trying. And I don't, that, you know, I think people try. I think they're just not doing, maybe they're not doing it correctly. Maybe they're not. And, and that goes beyond visualization. That goes to listening, not trying to solve a problem immediately. All of those things are really helpful in, you know, working with, working with women. But I think that it's, it's things like that that are really going to help financial planners deliver, you know, quality financial planning. So that's, that's an old one. And then again, a lot of the divorce work that I've done is, is incredibly applicable. We know, for example, that after a divorce, women tend to quit putting money into retirement accounts and they focus more on current consumption. We know men are more likely to focus more on long-term savings and not, not think about any sort of current savings. So they, they save nothing for emergency funds. Do you know why? The both of them? Do I know why? No, because it's, you know, we didn't ask them any questions. This is a mm -hmm. um, data set that's been around for a while. I think the assumption is that if the 401k, like so let's say long-term savings 401k, my hypothesis is that if you are the primary breadwinner and, you know, this is, you know, things have sort of changed since this, and this is, I think, this study, and we're looking at like 1960 to, you know, 2000. So when you're looking at that time period, primary breadwinner is probably male. They probably had a 401k. And a lot of times what, what happens when you have a 401k in your name, people think that it's theirs. Like you're married, but they think it's theirs. Uh, it's not, um, at least not, in the, not here in the U.S. It's you and your spouses. Just because it has your name on it doesn't mean it's yours. And so... I think we have people see that as when you, when you hear them talk, what they'll say is, well, I had to give you half of my, my 401k, not we split our retirement account. And so I, I think what's happening is they're saying, well, they, they have to catch up now because they had to give away half of their 401k. And women may see it as a windfall. They may say, okay, well, I've got this windfall, so I don't need to really worry about saving for retirement. I've got this retirement account now. But one of the things we also find, we found with that, those co cohorts is that those women weren't seeking advice from a professional. 
So they may not be getting advice that kind of helps them figure out what they're going to do. The other thing we saw was the risk tolerance changed. Risk, men's risk tolerance, you know, went up significantly. Women's risk tolerance went down. There are a lot of problems with risk tolerance as a measure, but in general, like you could see that there's a, you know, there was a big change post-divorce. And so, you know, the, the share of the allocated to riskier assets was higher for men. And so they end up with better off in the long term because the women's share of riskier assets is significantly smaller. So these are really key insights that if you're working, you know, even if you're not working with people who are going through divorce and then, you know, working with them after, if you, if you pick up a client who, you know, found you in a, in a book and they've gone through a divorce and you can, you can think about this research and say, okay, well, is this person, you can look at their allocation and then you have a conversation about, well, you know, why are you allocated this way? Well, you know, I'm scared of the market or, you know, whatever the reason might be, it gives you an opportunity to have that conversation. And conversely with men too, to be able to have that, you know, hey, maybe you don't need to be throwing, you know, all of your money into your retirement account. Let's actually look at what you need to do to, to meet your goals. So it's all conversation starters and it's all, the research is really helpful in, in allowing planners to get to know their clients better. What's going to work? What's not going to work? It almost seems like in that situation, I think it- I wrote down Tim Todd with the framing, his research around framing, but the way that the money is divided in that divorce is, it seems like around framing in the sense of the, the, the male perspective, like you said, they took it from me and the female was like, it's a windfall. Do you think like a researcher and you should go to grad school? I think, cause I didn't even think of that actually. So, but yeah, that is a, that is a framing issue and that's something we could test actually. That would be an interesting test to see how people think about that. The other observation I want to point out is in your research around the visual cue or using visuals with the text, a piece I, I, I pulled from the paper was when you said the results suggest cognitive load is lessened considerably when you use the visual plus the text. I thought this was super time relevant for this day and age when both people, like whatever the coupleship may look like these days, but major- lots of both spouses are working where there's this huge mm-hmm. cognitive load on us to get the kids to school, daycare. Oh my gosh, the bills are due, financial plan. And if we're seeing evidence that simple things like visual aids can help yeah. reduce that cognitive load, I think it then, back to our earlier conversation, is usually if we're only inviting the male or the dominant voice in the conversation historically with the finances, now this might be able to bring in the, the other view because... If we want, if we want to be relational around money as a coupleship, I think both voices need to be heard. Yeah, you really did your research. Um, <laughs> like you dug that that paper. That is the idea behind that. The cognitive load issue is this: is the idea that you have different pathways in your in your thinking, and then you know the certain pathways, the auditory pathways, are you know if you're not using them, then you're bur- overburdening something else. And so if you're using both, then you're Theoretically, you're you know, lessening the load and overall cognitive load. There is this concept of mental scarcity that's really popular, that is really applicable to, to financial planning where people just, they're depleted. They don't have the ability to make, you know, good financial decisions. Uh, and so, yes, I think absolutely visual aids are, are key in that. We did a Dr. Heckman, Dr. Lertz and Dr. Archuleta and I did a, a study on visual aids and portfolio choice. Same thing with advisors. So this is the great part is that, I don't know if you read, you probably read this one since you've done your your uh, your research here, but the visual aid improves the ability to pick the correct portfolio for advisors who are already more statistically literate than the average person. They're more statistically literate than surgeons, which was the original study that, that did this. And so you you, you see that even advisors need that little extra boost to be excellent, to be truly good at their job. So, yeah, I thought that yeah. was super interesting that someone who's so well versed, how much more improvement the visual aids can still be. Very, very interesting. I see the time here. Okay. I want to respect your time because I know you are a busy individual. You've got pages of notes. So, Maybe there'll be a round two some point in the future, but um, sure. So my final question that we have asked everyone on the podcast thus far, all 150 some, 
is let's imagine that you're at end of life. You could be whatever age that is, you're at end of life and you're sitting on a front porch looking out at a view that brings you peace, ease, and contentment. You decide to bring out a notebook and write a letter to your children's children on what you learned about having a happy and healthy relationship with money. What would be a key theme to that message? Oh, wow. That's a really, it's a really good question. It's a difficult question to answer. I think, you know, some of the things that we talked about at the beginning of the pod, podcast is that, you know, if you want to have a healthy and productive relationship with money is to give yourself the space and perspective to, and the opportunity to have perspective on what you really want out of life. Because money is is a tool and like it or not, that's that's our medium of exchange. And that's how, that's one of the ways you're going to be able to do the things that fulfill you is some form of a relationship with money. And you want it to be one where you are able to distance yourself from it emotionally. Have your emotions. You have, absolutely have to have your emotions but distance yourself as much as you can so that you can use it as a tool. Thank you. I appreciate it how you bring it full circle back to the tool and the having distance because both very important things in our financial journeys. Yeah. For individuals listening, if they are interested in finding your research, your online presence, where would you point them towards? Well, if they, if they want to look at my research, most of it is up on researchgate.net so they can get it there. If it's not there, they can just email me and I'll send it to them. Well, yeah, email me, I'll send it to them. There's not going to be that many people who ask for it. But it's also published. And so you can you go to Google Scholar, you can actually, some of those things, you can, they'll link directly to PDF. Some of it's open access. And then I'm on LinkedIn if people want to connect. You know, I'm easily Googleable since I have a unique, first and last name combination. So not going to be too many Michael Kothakotas with a PhD in financial planning running around. So when I Googled, you were the only one. Turns out I am the only one. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time and for all the work you're doing and really bringing sound evidence-based research to our profession. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on. I'm on a mountain without a top My wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write a freedom story With every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life It's just the wind in the sea